1: The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, an Aboriginal controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal, and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline? How can we help? Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. You're listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on life, love, and whether or not you should break up with that no-good Nick boyfriend. We know the answer is always yes. I'm your host, Clementine Ford, author of the books Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys, and currently writing the forthcoming memoir How We Love. And I'm such an enthusiastic admirer of my guest this week – Based in Seattle, she is a writer, speaker, and as she describes it, internet yeller. Her work focuses primarily on issues of race and identity, feminism, social and mental health, social justice, the arts, and personal essay, with her writing featured in The Washington Post, NBC News, Elle Magazine, Time, The Stranger, and The Guardian, among other outlets. She's the author of the New York Times best-selling book, So You Want to Talk About Race, and the just-published Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male Power. And she joined me for a very special episode of the Big Sister Hotline, we're not answering advice questions on this one, so just a heads up, but we are having a very robust conversation about white male mediocrity. She is Ijoma Aluo. Welcome. I just have to say from the outset, I fucking loved your book. It's filled with notes in the margins. I doggy the pages. I know that some people won't like that, but I just want to thrust this book into the hands of everyone that I see and tell them that they must read it. So thank you so much. Thank you. That means a lot. How are you feeling in the aftermath of it? Because obviously it's your second book and I've written two books too. And I know that that second one is, you make the mistake of thinking that it will be an easier process than the first and that the emotional fallout will be easier to handle. But I actually struggled a lot more with my second one. How are you feeling?
0: Yeah, no, this was a much more difficult book to write. I I think it was difficult, more difficult emotionally, but also it was a more difficult book, like from an artistic standpoint, right? Mm. There was just a lot more to it. It was a much more ambitious project for me. And of course, I wasn't expecting 2020 to be how it was. So I was doing this, you know, while also navigating, you know, what's been a really tough year. And so, yeah, it was really tough. I thought for sure it was going to be a while before I'd be able to look at the book and be like, okay, you know, I'm really glad I did this. But I am. I really do like the book. I'm very, very proud of it. But it was exhausting. And I am looking forward to some rest and rehabilitation, hopefully soon. It's kind of hard in the pandemic. There isn't really much rest and rehabilitation to be had here in the States um, with Mm. the way that COVID is going, but hopefully soon.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about, I know you're probably exhausted talking about the pandemic, but, you know, our government's response For as many problems as our federal government has, our state-based government's response was really swift and clearly very different to the Trump administration's approach, which is just to pretend that the virus isn't real. What's it like in Seattle? Because not only has Seattle and Washington been battling the pandemic, but also obviously was, is it accurate to say some kind of site of ground zero for protests and real radical social and community change? Yeah, so
0: Seattle was one of the first areas in the United States to have a major outbreak for COVID. So we've been battling this. You know, we went to lockdown here the end of February, beginning of March. So we're, you know, (laughs) we're looking at, you know, 10 months now, you know, going on 10 months of this. And it was difficult. The political environment here, I would say, we adapted at the beginning better than many other cities and states across the country and then, of course, we did have these major protests, especially here in Seattle. It was very difficult and also in some ways very uplifting. It was uplifting to know that we could still come together and fight for what was right in the middle of a pandemic. There is something inspiring, as stressful as it was, as fraught as it was, and honestly, as you know, terrifying as the police response was to protests in the middle of a pandemic, especially. There's something to be said about a respiratory illness, a deadly respiratory illness going around and having cops just with gleeful abandon, pepper spraying, you know, masses of people who are peacefully protesting, Mm. you know, that was incredibly difficult. And now it's hard because the fatigue has set in, you know, it was so politicized here. There wasn't really this idea that we're going to do this for each other. We're going to do this together. It became an argument about freedom and Now people are tired because we've had to do this so long because it was never done completely enough to be effective. We could have been where other countries are, we could have been where Australia is and have a little bit of freedom without fear. But instead, there's an you know, we were just looking up and you know, it's hit our black communities so hard and our native communities, especially. There's a black neighborhood here in Seattle that my partner was reading and saying they have a 20% positive rate on COVID tests right now. And It's just terrifying. Mm. It's killing people. It's hurting people. Even my my healthy 19-year-old son got COVID and still three months later can't laugh without coughing, you know, and it's just rampant. And for some reason, it's become politically okay to sacrifice all of our elderly and all of our young people and our communities of color for this idea of economic progress when what's really killing our economy is the fact that we haven't dealt with this and therefore have to live in this limbo for a year.
1: It's tricky and it can be personally confronting to recognize the silver linings in certain situations, but it's quite a prescient year for a book like this to come out, given that you know it's all about mediocrity and the, the legacy of white male power and also the celebration and deference of white male power. And, and that's really at the core of the COVID response, that we can sacrifice all of these other communities, as you say, communities of colour, the elderly, even the young, and certainly the poor. We can sacrifice those people as long as we maintain the integrity of the structure of white male power. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And what we've seen right here is one of the many extreme ways that this looks, where you're willing to sacrifice your health, your safety, even your economy, for the idea of power and freedom, Mm. you know, for the idea that no one's telling you what to do, that you're your own boss, that you're independent. And you're not, you know, we are dependent on each other and every way in which we deny that in order to keep this white male identity on top harms everyone. And we're definitely seeing this here and seeing how much toxic masculinity and white supremacy is tied to the response to this pandemic, especially in the United States is just another version of how white male supremacy harms everyone. And it's mm. it's extreme. I couldn't have predicted it, but also it tracks, you know. <laughs> we're not looking at
1: it and going, oh, that's an outlier. It's not. Yeah. It fits. It's the logical end point, really. Mm-hmm. I thought it was fascinating. A lot of this book as well is about, you know, you're connecting historical moments in America with the evolution of them to how we get to the point that we're at now. And I was really fascinated to read in your opening chapter about – the glorification and the mythologizing of the Wild, Wild West, and how neatly, and of course, obviously, it fits into this the white American male's identity of himself and the pursuit of this notion of, as you said, freedom and being a, an outlaw in lots of ways. And then connecting that and tying that to the takeover of the ranger's office in Mueller was that the name of the town? Yeah, it was a national park in Oregon, the Federal Reserve, and it's yeah, uh, horrible. The point that you make that in America, historically and certainly ramped up this year in the response to and the hostility towards the Black Lives Matter movement, that any kind of notion of black people in particular standing up for themselves and and fighting peacefully for freedom is framed as black extremists. Mm -hmm. And yet we have, as you say, all of these constantly forming white militia who are threatening the safety and the health of communities but also threatening law and order being almost championed and they are being championed that's what's terrifying too in in the
0: research and that is this is my backyard so seattle is a liberal city in the west right and and once you leave get about 45 minutes out of Seattle, you're in a very different environment. And you're kind of in this place that's still this kind of Wild West mentality. So even in Eastern Washington, we have a state representative who's wanted for treason. But he's protected by these same militias. The Bundy brothers themselves are actually still leading anti-mask protests right now. That's where they're, you know, they've chosen to shine at the moment. And it's amazing to watch how these people end up being heroes. And they're heroes because of the very obvious fact that the law and order is meant to control populations who aren't white men. Mm. And that's really what it's meant to do. It's meant to uphold that, to protect the freedom of white men, to act with impunity. And where law and order impinges upon them, it seems like an outrage because these systems were meant to serve them, to not stifle them in any way. That's the unstated truth of it. And yes, it's a violation of social compacts, but that's why it's such a a toxic and destructive system. And yeah, it is shocking to me. It is so shocking to recognize, you know, I was trying to figure out why we have this representative who's just walking around fine, even though, you know, and they said, oh, well, they're scared of the militias. They're scared of what will happen. When we look at what happens, you know, to the MOVE movement and the fact that the government was willing to bomb a whole city block of, you know, black liberation activists because they were supposedly, you know, dangerous, And yet we have all these militias. And even in the book shows how time and time again, the federal government would just back down Mm. and these people end up being heroes. It's so dangerous and so destructive. And it's a violence that I think white male supremacy needs to keep. They recognize that this power came from violence. And if they let it go, they don't actually have a moral argument that sustains. Mm. And I think that that's where we see a lot of this, you know, going back to it and the creation of new enemies, the creation of new dangers that are threatening white male America so
1: that you can justify this brutality. I love that you say in the introduction to your book, I'm just going to read a very quick passage from it. When you say, how often have you heard the argument that we have to slowly implement gender and racial equality in order to not shock society? Who is the society that people are talking about? I can guarantee that women would be able to handle equal pay or a harassment-free work environment right now with no ramp up. I'm certain that people of colour would be able to deal with political representation and economic opportunity if they were made available today. So for whose benefit do we need to go so slowly? How can white men be our born leaders and at the same time so fragile that they cannot handle social progress?' I read that and I and it articulated for me so much of that rage that you feel swirling inside about the hypocrisy and also obviously the white male fragility. White male fragility, which is in the same way that white women's fragility is weaponized in certain ways, white male fragility is weaponized in a particular way in order to sustain that power and to ensure that power, but to continue to oppress people over whom that power is wielded. In writing this book, did you experience that same? Or rather, how did you deal with what must have felt like a relentlessly frustrating and infuriating repetition of events? It was just brutal. You know, I remember turning to like my research
0: assistant to being like, no, not this genocide. I'm looking for the <laughs> other genocide. You know, I don't want, I want this. Oh, this guy looks horrific. Can you find out more about him? You know, <laughs> that, it's not my idea of fun. But there were times, too, where the absurdity, you had to just sit and marvel at the absurdity of it and be like, wow. You know, the amount of times where I remember seeing my partner, like, this is white supremacy. This (laughs) is white male supremacy right here. Like, this ridiculousness. And that's why it's so violent, because it has nothing else going for it, Mm -hmm. you know. And it was tough. But it was also, there were so many times where. I'd be watching the news and it reminded me of something I'm currently writing about where it puts things in context in a way that I think is really important. You know, I wrote the book because of the ways in which we like to treat each white man like he's an individual and not part of a system. Each white man, like he alone is, you know, potential that can't be tossed away, but also doesn't have the capacity for growth and change. Right. Mm. I think that when you are looking into it and diving into it, there's a strength that helps you process the world around you. And so in this year, it was very, very difficult in 2020 with all of the brutality, you know, with this pandemic to be living at what might be one of the end stages of white male mediocrity and then writing about it. But it was also in some ways a reassurance that we have absolutely seen it this bad before. <laughs> and we have fought and survived and we have to. And and hopefully what we're doing now, the fight we're putting in now, will make it so that we don't have to keep continuing this cycle. But it, it was difficult. There were times where it was, I wanted to laugh, I wanted to cry, where I didn't want to have
1: anything to do with the book anymore, you know, but you just push through. I think what you articulate so well and that what so few people seem to understand is that And you kind of highlight this in in the chapter where you talk about politics and there's a big segment in there on Bernie Sanders, which as I was reading I was just circling things and kind of fist bumping and I shared a few of those pages to my Instagram stories because I share your frustrations with, I know that people sort of toss aside the label Bernie bros, but it's a real phenomenon and it does exist and I share your frustration with that particular strain of sexism and as you would have experienced racism as well that came from the white male contingent of Bernie fans, or a lot of them at least, I feel like you articulated so well that white men's fight, even though it's always framed with people who are far more oppressed than they could possibly be, even if they are working class and poor and have and have lacked opportunities in some respects, their fight is with other white men, and their fight is with the hierarchy of power that places a small proportion of a particular kind of white man at the top, and yet it's so much easier, as you point out, to just kick down and keep fighting, fighting for the people who they feel have taken something from them that at heart, they don't think that those people deserve because they're not white men. Absolutely. And I think it's so important to recognize that that idea doesn't really
0: have a political ideology, that it it goes across political spectrums. This idea that white men in the end, whether they're fighting for equality, whether they're fighting, you know, to preserve white supremacy will be the center of whatever comes out of it Mm. and there is a white supremacy and there is sexism to that that many white men on the left don't want to acknowledge because they've written their own hero narrative that's similar to the wild west narrative only the heroes they're defeating of course are the heroes of depression and republicans and blah 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 blah. but they're still the hero and Mm. it's still going to be about them and it's very toxic because it it prevents us from making any progress that would decenter white men or would conflict with what white men view are their immediate needs or comfort areas even. And it gets to the point where, you know, you often can't tell the difference of who's supporting what political ideology when they're coming at you because what you've done is you've inconvenienced a white man and therefore you're going to feel his wrath regardless of who he voted for, regardless of what bumper stickers he has. And it's important that we recognize that because I do believe that it, it does pull many white men, this tendency, this idea, we never challenge how white men are centered in everything. It pulls many white men away from the morals that they think they would like to have. And they don't, rep- You know, I even today just got an email from a white man saying, I was listening to you talk about this, and I feel that instinct in myself, that discomfort I get mm. anytime it's not about me. And I don't know how to fight it effectively. I, I can find it afterwards, but I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fight it. Do you have any tips? How do I fight this? And that's the conversation we need to be having. It's not necessarily, I don't believe in like, you know, taking your vocal white man one-on-one and being like, let me guide you. But I do <laughs> think as a society, right,
1: we need to look at how we are reinforcing and rewarding
0: this behavior mm. and these expectations. Mm.
1: I remember when I first started publicly speaking and writing as a feminist and, you know, hopefully in the 10 or 15 years since then my ideas have changed and evolved and I've grown a lot, but I remember at the start really leaning into that have to handhold and reassure and make sure that every man in the room knows that you're not speaking about him. You know, of course he's great because he's just turned up and that's literally all he needs to do is just turn up or even just talk about turning up. He doesn't even need to be there. He just needs to show up and he's done an amazing job. And then over, you know, I I started becoming more and more frustrated, as I'm sure you can appreciate with your own work, that that would never actually result in any kind of change, only in backpats. And then thinking that it's discomfort that creates change, isn't it? Whether or not it's in humans or whether or not it's in nature, whatever it is, you need to discomfort an environmental landscape in order for change, true change Mm -hmm. to occur. And I feel like this is what a lot of men don't understand, and a lot of white people speaking as a white person, I felt those pricks of discomfort before and and had to, like, figure out how to navigate that myself. It's almost shocking to me, although it shouldn't be shocking, that we can have reached this point and that's still coming as a surprise to some people.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's the one thing that always, like, I always marvel at is wondering what it must be like to, like, be a full-grown adult. And realize the system's rigged. Like, what is that? (laughs) You know, what what would that feel like? It's so weird. But you know, what's interesting to me, and I'm sure that you as a parent, Clem, Mm. feel this as well, I'm a mother of two boys. And the extreme pessimism that many white men have about white men, that many men have about men, for their ability to be more than this is Mm. shocking. I don't believe in making feminism about what men can get out of it, but there is no denial, of course, that the patriarchy harms men. But just the thought that they can't grow and change, like I look at my beautiful children and think of all the potential they have and think someone wants to tell me that they can't learn how to not hurt people, that they can't become a tool for freedom instead of oppression, that they can't actually be better, that they can't be the good people living up to their full capacity to contribute to society. Like, how dare you, mm. how dare you limit human beings like that? And it's not us doing it. A lot of times people like to say, Oh, you, you must hate white men. I am profoundly disappointed in them as human beings. And there's a huge difference. I get to be disappointed because I believe in the human capacity for growth and change. Mm. And I would rather be disappointed because at least it shows I had some faith than, to act as if I need to get used to the idea that a whole segment of the population gets to be an abuser forever because for some reason they can't handle hearing a truth or learning to grow, you know, or change. I don't believe that that's the case, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's so funny to me to realize, like I want to point out to people when this fragility hits, that the fragility is based in a pessimism about your own ability to withstand... Some painful truths, your own ability to grow and change, and you got to believe in yourself a little bit more than that. you got to believe you can do it because, trust me, you can. Like, as a Black woman, very few things in the world were built for me. The horrible truths of racism and sexism, queerphobia, all these things hit me as a child or even before I was born. Uh, trust me when I say you can learn and grow, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's not, and and don't even need my hand holding, you know, and that's where I I feel like, gosh, you know, we actually don't need to babysit entire populations through this. We've been talking and writing about this for hundreds of years. We have to actually just
1: expect what we know humans are capable of, which is to grow out of this. This is the great bait and switch that is played as well, is that white men in particular demand of women and any kind of marginalised community that is that is expecting more of them. Absolute allegiance to this idea that 99% of men are amazing and great and would never do anything to hurt anyone. And yet they retain the right to also say of themselves, well, what did she expect? Or this is, you know, we can't grow and change. This is just what men are like. It's locker room talk. You know, this is boys being boys. I share your frustrations and fears as well because I see, and, you know, unlike you, you're raising two boys who will be oppressed by the system and you have to navigate that. I'm raising a white man who will be welcomed into the system if I don't subvert that early on. Mm -hmm. I share your frustrations in that it actually is not that hard to instill Mm -hmm. these messages early on and it's my biggest responsibility you know, aside from keeping him safe and protected and loved, obviously. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I feel the same way as you, that when I look at him and I think how could anyone say of him, well, how was he meant to know better?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And I see evidence of him knowing better every day in his own small childlike world and his childlike way. It's the gaslighting, I think, that happens when you know something to be true and you've been articulating this only to be blamed for that thought you hate men, you you're saying this because you think all men are blah, blah blah, and yet then turning around and having to hear, well, men can't be better than this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, and it's so it's so shocking. and
0: as a parent, even when your kids are young, I think when you're raising boys, especially, I, for me, it felt like this desperation as the patriarchy tried to claim my children, take them away from their nature, you know, mm. and make them into these hard, abusive things that were cut off from their own feelings, their own emotions and their connections to people. And you fight it. You have to battle it in so many different ways, you know, that it becomes really frustrating because you're like, you know who they are and you see how they know right from wrong. Mm. And they want to connect and they care and they love, and they love sparkly things and they love beautiful things and they love to explore and be sensitive. And, and then you see the world try to change them and then say, that's their nature. But you see the effort and it's so strong. But I think what we need to recognize is that white behavior as a political and social construct is very similar. These are things actually pulling people away from their human nature and saying, you were meant to oppress. You were meant to always see yourself above. This is your nature and it's not. And this idea that it's normal So normal, we don't even have to name it, right? We have society and then we have populations of color and then we have women and then we have trans populations, right? We don't even have to name what it is. It's so normal, but it's not. This is a deliberate construct designed to pull people actually away from their natures and from our collective natures that actually helps us survive.
1: Mm. And not to go back too much into the Bernie stuff, because to be honest, even after I shared those pages, I received a lot of messages from people who were very angry that I was sharing any material that was critical of Bernie Sanders. You have this great passage in the book where you talk about, sorry, let me just find it. Mediocre, highly forgettable white men regularly enter feminist spaces and expect to be centred and rewarded, and they have been. They get to be highly flawed. They get to regularly betray the values of their movement, yet they will be praised for their intentions or even simply for their presence, while women must be above reproach in their personal and public lives in order to to avoid seeing themselves and their entire movement engulfed in scandal. I feel like that's very representative in the way that, in this sort of fever that kind of has been erected around Bernie Sanders in that, He seems to be completely unimpeachable to a lot of people, even though as you (laughs) so consistently lay out, he continues to go back to this idea of quote-unquote ordinary Americans, which, as you just said before, what he means is the white male working class. And he centres them as ordinary and everything else around them as other. And this was pretty consistent in his messaging. I was quite surprised although not surprised at the same time, to read about the campaign funding, as you said, that he went into um, what was formerly known as historically black colleges, to, you know, campaign, and yet the campaign denied tickets to the majority of black students that were there, and it ended up being a majority white audience. Yeah, it's shocking
0: and not at the same time. And, And the sad part, too, is, you know, he was one of the better candidates in the field and he had so many ideas and that's the sad, that's one of the sad things about this mediocrity, right? Mm. Was part of why Sanders lost was because he couldn't connect with these populations that he actually needed because the thought of stepping away from centering white men and white men's needs, even for a moment, even if it would make you better at accomplishing your ideals. And I do believe he really genuinely believes in upending the evils of hyper-capitalism in this country. But in order to do that, you have to acknowledge the way in which race and gender play a part in this. And his refusal to do that actually made him less effective at what he does and betrayed his own morals, but also for everyone who stood up for him and who saw him as the closest chance we would get to these sort of reforms consistently betrayed those ideals as well and their refusal to acknowledge that he would have to grow and change, that we can expect white men, even white men who are saying some great things, to do better and to center someone other than themselves sometimes. That's the really sad thing about it, you know, is I would have loved to have been as excited about Bernie Sanders as so many other people were, because I do believe in economic equality. I do believe we need to do something about hyper-capitalism in this country. But His refusal to actually be effective in it and to look at the root causes where it impacts populations that aren't white men, you know, meant that he couldn't connect. And Mm -hmm. even the fact that we couldn't bring it up in our desire to make him better, in our desire to make him more palatable, it, it was a threat. You know, it's because so many white men see themselves in this. And they're like, nobody told me I would have to do better. Nobody told me I would have to actually grow and change. And so a lot of times white men are protecting their own image in these people and not realizing they're dooming themselves in the whole movement in that process. But what they want to preserve is the idea that they can do the bare minimum always and they mm. will be heroes for it. And the thought that we would even get to judge is an insult, that we would get to say it doesn't serve us, is an insult to them because they were told that they just have it in them magically, you know, mm-hmm. and, the, and the ways in which many of these white men acted as if they had discovered something that all of the black activists hadn't discovered, that disabled activists hadn't discovered, right, <laughs> that queer activists hadn't discovered. They had the magic because they read an article, and they saw a <laughs> speech, you know, and you're just like, really? Mm-hmm. Really? You know, maybe you could learn, you could be better, you could be useful to this. But the narrative around white men is no. You just have it in you. You're magic. It's just in you. You're a natural born leader. You have it. You have the right, and no one has the right to expect you to show your work
1: mm. or to give anything up. Mm-hmm. This is the other thing as well. Is that, and I'm sure you personally appreciate that this is something that white people are also really good at doing, which is, well, why should I have to give anything up in order to re-level the playing field? That doesn't sound like equality to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously men are very good at saying that about women. White people are very good about saying that at saying that about people of colour. But this idea that somehow equality, it's something that's frustrated me for a long time, particularly in terms of feminism, that gender equality will just magically come into being by the state of just sort of wanting it, you know. If we all just agree, if we all just stand around and just agree that men and women can be equal, then it will just magically happen. And we won't need to have any overhaul of systems of governance in which mediocre white men or the stale pale males, as someone here has called them, (laughs) in which they get to continually rule without question. That's fine because that, that then fulfills their ideology about themselves, which is that it's about merit. Mm-hmm, absolutely.
0: And, and it's so funny because even when I'm talking or giving interviews with people who seem really gung-ho with my message, when I get to the part where I say, it's not always going to benefit you, mm. you may lose some things and that's the reality. And people want to say, oh, but you know, in the end, it'll be great. And they want to fast forward. I'm like, cool, we can yeah, we know this in the end, a society where we don't have huge segments of the population that are left behind that are oppressed does better by and large for most people. But that's a long time out. And in the meantime, you may well lose opportunities that you didn't really deserve. You may feel less heard. You may feel less represented. <laughs> wow. you, know, you, you may lose all these fringe benefits of oppression and you're going to have to be OK with that. You're going to have to learn to be okay with that. And that's something that people seem so afraid to acknowledge, but we can actually make progress. And that's why I get so wary of like these movements that's, you know, where it's like, you know, white people against racism and they keep talking to white people about what they'll gain from it, Mm. you know, or, or men for feminist movements where it's even in the book show historically, even this is what you'll get as a man, because we have to recognize that we are doing this because we believe in freedom from oppression for all people because we know that it is right because we know that in the end this is how you create a society that doesn't harm massive amounts of people and you're in that for that reason not because one day you're going to feel better about yourself because Mm -hmm. the moment that you don't feel better about yourself you're going to feel like it's lost its way and we hear this constantly right we hear these men who are like trying to be a feminist and then a woman yelled at me and 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 it's obviously gone too far. And we hear this Black Lives Matter went too far. Why? Well, because they shouted something I didn't like or they called out a company I didn't like or a person that I love, you know. Well, they made me and feel bad for a minute. Exactly. I felt bad for a minute or I was asked to spend my money differently. Right. <laughs> or I was asked to vote differently. Mm. And those sorts of things you know, we're never going to get to the real progress we need if people don't let go of the idea that it's going to, if white people, especially in white men, don't let go of the idea that progress is going to benefit them every step of the way. Some things aren't designed for them. Some things you do because you're a human being and Mm -hmm. because you believe in correcting wrongs and you believe that you actually do have a karmic debt that you owe from the way in which you have benefited from the oppression of others that you have to fix it that is going to have to suffice your morals will have to guide you through those tough adjustment periods until we get to the point where it does truly benefit everyone because you may not even see that in your lifetime You may lose that promotion and never see a benefit that makes up for that. And you still have to be committed to the work because that's why we do this. Anywhere where we allow to hold on to the fringe benefits of someone else's oppression,
1: we are going to be ineffective to our movements. Mm. This is the Big Sister Hotline. I am Clementine Ford, and I'm speaking with Ijo Maraluo about her second book, Mediocre, The Legacy of White Male Power. It's an excellent read. I really recommend you buying it for Christmas. Buy it for all the people that you know. Read it. And if you're a white man especially, I know obviously there's tons of white men that listen to this podcast. Lol. But if you are one of the five, then I also recommend that you read it. Ijeoma, I love that idea of like thinking beyond yourself. This is something that I also talk about in terms of feminist and feminism and gender equality is that it's usually in response to other women who who are feeling that kind of fatigue of nothing's changing or it's all changing at such a slow pace. Will we achieve it in our lifetime? I often hear that. Will we achieve gender equality in my lifetime? And Unfortunately, I don't know if this is really pessimistic, but I I think you probably agree. My answer is always no. I just don't think that we will. I think that we will slowly move towards it, and I think that the enthusiasm and the the work of of really of the most marginalized people in the world, black women working for for gender equality, will do more than anyone else. And I'm not saying that to pander. We just know that that's the truth, right? <laughs> but it won't happen in our lifetime because the system is still so entrenched and still so powerful and, as you say, is still working so hard over time to, even if when acknowledging that change needs to occur, to still try and do it around the centering of mediocre white men in order that Mm -hmm. they not be upset or put out in any way. And I've often thought about it in terms of, like, fulfilling a recipe, like baking a cake or something like that, you know, that there may be a 12- or 15-step process and then at the end the cake comes out of the oven but we might be at step three now and each of those steps might be 30 years,
0: you know, Mm -hmm. so we don't
1: just go, well, fuck it. I don't get to eat the cake, so I'm not going to be part of the cake making. Like we have Mm -hmm. to think I'm going to make the cake because one day someone is going to be able to sit down and many someones will be able to sit down there and enjoy a slice of this beautiful cake that has never been tasted before.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think it's important, you know, for me, I think, yeah, as a black woman, Absolutely. I'm not going to see the end of white male supremacy in my lifetime. Right. But I am not driven by that. I'm not driven by we have to end white male supremacy. I'm driven by we have to protect and uplift communities that I adore, that I love, human beings who are being harmed. And if you are doing this work because you love people, because you recognize and value the humanity of people crushed by these systems, then you have victory in every step of the way. It's not just the end goal. I fundamentally believe Black Lives Matter. That's one of the driving forces of my work. If I believe that Black Lives Matter and there is no negotiating that, I believe, I hold it so dear to my heart, then that means that yes, while white supremacy exists, every step that we make that improves a Black life now is worth it. Mm. And to deny that is to deny the value that we state we we hold for these populations. And so it's important to recognize that, yes, we keep doing this work, you know, not because we absolutely know we're going to see the end goal in our lifetime or even in our kids lifetimes, but because we know that right now the people being impacted by these systems matter and everything that we can do to. Lessen that to reduce harm and make sure that future generations, you know, I believe in two paths. I believe we reduce harm with what's here now that we know we can't move. And we do the work to make sure that there's less work for future generations to keep deconstructing these systems. So we work both long and short term. And we do it because we believe that all of the people crushed by these systems, all of the women, all the people of color, you know, all of the non-binary people and trans people harmed by these systems are of value and are worth the work. It's not actually about the evil. The goal is about what we want to enable populations that we love to be able to achieve in this world Hmm. and the humanity and the love that we have there. That's, That's what guides me. It has to, because I know there will be generations ahead of me. I know that there will be struggle and many defeats. But if I can't stop and say, that this change we made in, in the school system here in Seattle, if I can stop and say those kids matter that come through that system, then what am I doing? Mm-hmm. You know, what am I actually fighting for? And I think that's important to recognize that one of the main tools of white male supremacy is this denial of the humanity of women and populations of color. The idea that the way we suffer now can easily be excused away because it protects white men and each individual white man is more important than all of the people who aren't white men who are harmed by these systems and you know number one all of our work has to be rooted in our fundamental belief
1: in the undeniable humanity of women and populations of color mm. you talk in the book about how you as a black woman and i know a little bit about if i can say you you know for a lot of your parenting life you're a single mom and you faced, I think it's fair to say, a range of different oppressions and marginalizations at the hands of the system. And yet you have, as you say, in that position you are always expected to be able to adapt and accept whatever little bit of change might happen. So, for example, I'm using this to lead into talking about the Joe Biden presidency. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden is not going to be perfect for everybody, but you as a black woman have to accept on some level or make some compromise within yourself that this will be better than the alternative. And this is a practice that you and so many other marginalised people have learned, as you said, from even before birth, and yet this expectation that white people and white men never have to adapt or never have to compromise because why should they have to or they can't is still so rife. And I was really interested to read in your book about Joe Biden's legacy of... um, the busing the students. And I would love for you to explain that a little bit because i'm I'm not familiar with the what busing is or what that means. It's a very different kind of system from that which we have here, which is also deeply rooted in racism and mm-hmm. you know white supremacy. Could you explain that a little bit, please?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what we have in the United States still to this day are extremely racially segregated school systems, and you know part of it is keeping this social and economic separation of the races. And so because a lot of our funding for schools we have some federal funding but for the vast majority of primary schools especially funding is done by property taxes it's on the local level so when you have racial segregation especially when populations of color are more likely to live in poverty especially when you're concentrating that poverty in neighborhoods what you end up with is you can have one school that has millions and millions of dollars to spend each year and one school that's in debt every year and they're right next to each other and Part of how that's upheld is by this strict racial segregation of how we draw school district lines. And so, white communities have often kept and hoarded the wealth that often they have earned due to white supremacy Mm -hmm. and to ensure for their students only by drawing school district lines that specifically keep out populations of color and poor populations. And so in the 1960s, there were efforts to really break this up, especially in the South, where in the Jim Crow era, there were, you know, real segregation of, you know, every facet of public life on race and racial lines. And so they started integrating schools and it was very violent. The National Guard had to be called into certain schools to walk children in as parents were spitting on children and throwing rocks at them because and pulling their kids out of schools. And this this was also a huge driver of the private school movement in the United States was this. But in the North and in the West, there was this idea that the segregation there wasn't rooted in the same racism, but it, it was. Mm. And so busing was the solution when everything else failed, when you couldn't get You know, jobs to hire people of different races, when you couldn't get real estate agents to sell or rent homes to people of different races, then what you ended up having to do was to bus black students into white schools and white students into black schools. And the idea was if we mix that opportunity, we will get more investment in black schools, Mm -hmm. but we'll also get an increase in opportunity for black students. And parents won't be able to draw these lines in these community lines. And it's mixed bag as to how it worked, right? It was incredibly traumatic for a lot of students, um, especially Black students, to be pulled out Mm -hmm. of their neighborhoods into a hostile environment. And some said it absolutely opened up opportunity for them as far as their education and ability to get new jobs. But it was the last resort. Nothing else was working. There was such hostility to it. And it is vital that we don't, you know, segregate our schools in this way, especially economically. So in the North, Biden was a huge campaigner for busing until it hit the North, until his actual constituency, his white constituency, was going to have to face the reality that they weren't going to be able to keep their white kids separate from kids of color. And he immediately then launched a anti-busing crusade. And it was a real betrayal of the Black people in his constituency who supported him and supported busing. And it was overwhelmingly popular in the Black community at the time. And to show how quickly he was able to give up this whole population and then reframe the story as he was actually helping Hmm. Black populations (laughs) by doing this and promising there would be a better way. And of course, there should be a better way. No one thought busing was the ultimate solution. But when we look at, you know, Delaware schools, when we look at schools all across the country, what we see is the resegregation of schools and the under-educating of students of color once again, um, that matches what we saw decades ago. And it's heartbreaking because once, you know, the threat of your kids going to school with kids of color was gone, then... Our kids were forgotten about Mm. and, you know, they really have been undereducated ever since. And we have this even here in Seattle. Seattle has one of the largest testing gaps by race in the country for major cities in the country. And we're one of the wealthiest and
1: highest educated cities in the country. Mm. I think I recall a stat from the book where you said that predominantly black schools receive $23 billion less funding a year than predominantly white schools. it's, It's horrifying.
0: They found that even when they control for income of the neighborhoods, there's still less funding. Even mm. programs aimed at increasing funding to poor schools will give more to poor white schools than they will give to poor black and brown schools. It's deliberate at this mm. point. We can't pretend like it's not. It's harming our students. It's locking our whole you know, communities into generations of poverty over and over
1: again. So how do you feel then about the election that had to have been won by the Democrats and the option that they went with reinforces or, or supports the thesis of your entire book, which is that in order to create change, we must pander to and cater to white male insecurity about their position within that change. And they went with the most kind of milk toast option. What were your feelings around that? having that conflict between desiring an end to the Trump presidency, but the frustration that must have come from seeing people say this is the only way it can be done.
0: Yeah, you know, I um, I did not wake up once this election season and think, yeah, I'm going to get to vote for Joe Biden, right? Like at <laughs> no point was this an exciting prospect for me. Wow, talk about mediocrity, just this whole campaign. And yet he squeaked by, you know, mm. you're like, oh, my goodness, you know, like, wow. And it is frustrating, and it's so difficult, and it's dehumanizing, honestly, because the Democratic Party does depend so heavily on populations of color. It's so dehumanizing, the disrespect of saying this is the best we can do. But I also think that plenty of voters of color voted with that pragmatism of knowing where white people were at. But what I... Always remember is that this change that we have is never going to come from the presidency. Mm. The presidency will eventually reflect the change that we create on local levels and, and across the country. And so that's where we have to focus. I look forward to protesting this president. Absolutely. Like, I look forward to that. I look forward to knowing that we can do that without someone from our highest office legitimizing open hatred and violence towards us. You know, it's because we're going to have to protest just like we had to protest during the Obama administration as well. And I look forward to doing so without knowing that also at the same time, someone's actively fighting our constitutional rights and, you know, cheering on people who want us dead. Hmm. That's a sad, sad, sad minimum. But for me, victory was never going to be in whose presidency. If we get to the point where we're like, where I get to be excited about who's on the main ticket, we will have already done our work Mm. to get to that point where someone can build that career to have that level of support. So it's sad, but it's always just a reminder that we have to do this work in our neighbourhoods, and our communities, you know, if we want what we see on the national stage to truly reflect our values.
1: Mm. I just want to touch briefly again on the idea of the meritocracy, the myth of the meritocracy. And, uh, you know, when you were talking about the underfunding of schools and the segregation of schools that occurs now as so much racial injustice and racial oppression and so much gender oppression occurs in unlegislated ways so people can conveniently point to it and go, well, the legislation doesn't allow for women to not be paid the same in the workplace, so therefore it must never happen, Mm -hmm. as opposed to these kind of things being a lot more insidious. And so one of them being that if you don't fund predominantly black schools and if you don't provide funding to predominantly black communities, then of course you create this massive gap of opportunity between white people and people of colour. And then... The sting being that people then turn around and say, well, it's about merit, you know, and I've got here because I lifted myself up by my bootstraps and, you know, I just also happened to be born into a really wealthy family, but, you know, I'm a meritorious person. To me, I feel like this kind of like dismantling the myth of meritocracy is such an important part of this. Like, how do we get people to see, I mean, this is one of those pie in the sky questions, but how do we get people to see and understand that merit is bullshit and, that it all is systemic and it starts even when a, before a baby's been born. The opportunities for that child will be lined up depending upon their circumstances in life.
0: That's something that I really struggle with. That's, that's very difficult to get is like how to get people because people are afraid to admit that. There's so much pride and identity wrapped in this idea that you've been working so hard and you're just going to get your reward if you keep going. And to admit that that was never going to happen is an incredibly painful thing that so many people are reluctant to do, especially white men. And it has to be done. And part of where I think it has to be done is We have to start changing the system and show that there's another way so that people can actually see there's an alternative. Part of what supports it is this idea that this is the best we could possibly do, right? So often, you know, we hear people saying, oh, the system sucks, but it's the best one we've got. No, it's not. It's not the (laughs) best one we've got. And so by changing that narrative and talking about it and valuing different things and saying, wow, this is a different way to do this and it's working and it's wonderful. Let's give this a try in these spaces. Some of it is you have to force the change, force it in small spaces, force it where you can, to show that we can do things differently. Because when you put a little air in there, when people can see, wait a minute, this doesn't have to take everything out of me. I don't have to compromise my morals. I don't have to step on other people to feel safe and comfortable. When we show that, when we invest in that, when we protect that, it can put some air in there. But what I think honestly is, there are so many of us who know something's wrong. Right. So many of us know that something is deeply wrong mm. and we are so convinced that we have to actually drag the people who don't know with us, that we have to convince them before we move forward, that we spend all this time and energy on it. When part of me is like, you know what, let's just move forward anyway and say that we're worth it. We move forward and people will see in the system. And and we have seen change like that. Where we do see change, we don't see it because everyone had a meeting and decided it's time for change. It's because the change was pushed forward, forced forward against all this backlash. And then people realized they didn't die. Not only did they not die, things got better. Mm. And that's what we have to commit to. And part of why I wrote this book was the frustration of the fact that people think that the current backlash we're facing right now to women and people of color, to trans populations, to disabled populations, for the progress we're making, the backlash people are saying, are using as an excuse to stop pushing. And what I argue is, no, you keep pushing and people realize that they're okay, Mm. (laughs) that it didn't actually end them. And then we just keep going. And if people will either catch up or they won't, but I honestly believe I'm worth more. Mm. I, as someone who cares about people and wants to make the world better for people, I am worth more than people who don't. Mm. And I believe in pushing forward (laughs) and you can catch up or not. I don't seek to harm anyone, but I do seek to harm your systems that are harming other people. And we can do this even if white men don't sign on. And part of why I want to show that is we have to recognize how toxic it is, you know, and say, we're going to keep pushing forward and we're going to stop feeling like we have to appeal to every white man invested in this system. Where people know something's wrong and maybe are invested, we can help make people aware, Mm. you know, people who want to become aware. But we don't need to actually handhold people through this. Mm.
1: I love the way that you outline that. And, you know, in activist circles, I rarely describe myself as an activist. I don't feel like I've earned that title. I think I'm a writer. and And for me, those two things are different for me personally, mainly because I feel like I don't do the work that activists do in that really committed way. But there is a lot of talk about self-care and radical acts of self-care in activist movements and I actually think that what you've outlined is a radical act of self-care to give yourself not just permission but to actually understand and come to that conclusion that I don't need to drag this weight behind me in order to try and make this change. I don't need to go and present a neat, polite case to the system and to the people in power in order to be given permission to do as you say to move forward i can actually just do it with either by myself but more likely with other people who are committed to moving forward and the momentum and the kind of mass exodus of people from within the system will do that work for you you know for me when i when i realized that about men in terms of gender equality when I realized that I didn't care whether or not they liked it or not, that I was just going to do what I needed to do, and that if that message resonated with people, they would come with me, and I would come with other people, I would go with other people. It felt incredibly liberating.
0: Mm-hmm. What I always try to ask people and myself is, what is your definition of success here, right? If we, if we acknowledge these systems will outlive us, mm. then is my definition of success that I got a white man to see that I'm a human being? <laughs> Or is my definition of success that I helped women of color thrive Mm. in the society. And if that's my definition of success, then if a white man wants to join me, great, but it's what serves that. It's what serves that. And, and that's where I think we have to recognize where patriarchy and white supremacy are often built into the definitions of success in our movements, because it's still built on the edification and the growth and enlightenment of white men. Mm. And That's not what my definition of success is. My definition of success is our ability to thrive as marginalized populations and to step into our power and build better systems. It is not, I made a better white man. That's up to white men.
1: You've been listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. If you have a question, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com and don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got your back. And if you'd like to support the ongoing making of this podcast, you can find me on Patreon under the username Clementine Ford. My guest on this very special episode this week, where, yes, there were no advice questions answered, but we had a much bigger and more important conversation, I think, for this week – my guest has been Ijeoma Oluo, best-selling author of "So You Want to Talk About Race" and the newly published "Mediocre: The Dangerous Legacy of White Male Power." You can purchase that now, and I really strongly recommend that you do. It's a fucking excellent read, and. If you've listened to this whole episode, please share it with your friends because I think that everything that she said has been so important to listen to. Ijeoma, thank you so much for joining me. I know that it's a punishing thing to do a book tour, particularly when you're dealing with different time zones. And I really, really appreciate your time today.
0: Oh, thank you so much. It really was a pleasure
1: to talk with you. You know, I love your work. Oh, well, I feel very strongly about your work and, I, and I'm so thrilled to see you sharing your work and and having the success that you have worked so hard for. So I hope you have a great Christmas. I hope that you are well loved and taken care of, which I know that you are. And I'm very, very glad that you're in the world. Thank you. Thanks. Same to you. Take care. Remember there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead, the Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open.